And now, coming to you live from the Gershon Room, high above the Good Street Motel 6, it's Jonathan Strahan and Gary K. Wolf staring down the end of the year on the Good Street Podcast! We're back in the States here. It's a couple of days after Thanksgiving. It's about a month before Christmas. It's six weeks before New Year's. It's two months before whatever that thing is. At the 700 end of, days before Easter, yeah, I, I get yeah, it. Exactly, yeah, exactly, whatever. And and uh, maybe, what, we're, we're six months away from our 12th anniversary episode. So uh, 13th anniversary episode. 13th maybe. anniversary. The, okay. Yeah, I think the, uh, I was looking it up, I think it's the 5th of May 2010 was the first episode of what became this rambling peregrination that is the Cood Street podcast. Children who were conceived the evening of that podcast are now in middle school. Think about that. <laughs> well, what crossed my mind just before the podcast, <laughs> Gary, was if you look at things, other than when we have been in the same location at a convention, and even then, mm-hmm. has a single episode of the Crude Street podcast on which we both appear ever featured both of us not under the influence of alcohol? Well, you're... You're, you're, it's, it's early morning where you are. You're under the influence of caffeine. Yeah, but one or other of us. Or one or saying. the other. That's absolutely true. Um, yeah. There's been late night podcasts for me after we've re- where we've recorded after 9 or 10 o'clock at night. And I certainly maybe have had a tipple. I was recording an episode of this very podcast last night with a friend of ours and was enjoying a fine whiskey from Campbelltown in Scotland. Mm-hmm. And it is... De rigueur, Gary, I would say that when we podcast and it's the morning here and you are at home in Chicago, a glass or two of red wine will disappear from your home. Yes, but that probably would happen anyway. <laughs> well, you know, I don't know whether we should discreetly draw a, a, a close over this other than to note that, you know, maybe it's, it's in keeping with the podcast that because for the rambling conversations we choose to have, one of us at least should be mildly lubricated. Makes makes sense to me. So the question that we have, this we always have the same question, and every podcast has this question. Are you reading anything interesting? Gosh, part of me wants to say no. I am struggling, Gary. <laughs> I, I am struggling, really? struggling. Yes. I am partway through two different space operas at the moment, neither of which I choose to name because it feels unfair. Uh-huh. But I will tell you, one I am halfway through and I've been frustrated with because it has not yet resolved into something that I'm thoroughly engaged with. It's like faith in the author has kept me going rather than the book. The Mm -hmm. other has been strongly recommended to me as one of the best books of the year. And I just, I hit the first 12 pages, 14 pages. I'm going, I am not engaged by this whatsoever. You know, I do have other books that are in the house that I want to read, I think, but I always have other books. And there's a little part of me that is just about ready to say, stuff it, forget 2022, start reading those 2023 books. Well, now, of course, this time of year, we're supposed to be thinking about 2022 books, but uh, I I know the exact feeling you have. And I've had the same feeling with a book uh, highly recommended by a friend of the podcast. And we will probably Mm -hmm. be talking to this author sometime soon. And I find myself bouncing off of it and thinking, I, my first thought is, this doesn't really need to be science fiction at all. And if it's not science fiction, it needs to be more of what it seems to be. Now, 
what I tend to do when that happens with an author I like is put the book aside if I've gotten time given deadlines and see if a week or two later I can get into it. And sometimes that works well. Sometimes, yep, uh, sometimes there are books, even by writers that you love, that you just bounce off of, and you have to admit that. And sometimes and that, there are books by writers that you love that aren't as good as the books you loved by that writer. Very, very true. And the other th thing that happened to me in this space about what are you reading, last night I was recording, and I will now unveil it for the listeners, Gary. Last uh -huh. night I was talking to my dear friend Guy Gavriel Kay for our upcoming series of podcasts. Mm -hmm. And we were talking about his 2022 novel, All the Seas of the World. And I was holding a copy of my hand. I thought, what I really want to do is reread All the Seas of the World. Uh-huh. Because I think it's quite a rereadable book. Well, there are a number of books like that where there are layers. And uh, in, in, in his case, uh, mostly I think it's attractive. Uh, we're attracted to the characters and the relationships, but his whole alternate history thing works. There, uh, I, I've been talking some on uh, on Facebook and on Twitter and elsewhere about Ray Naylor's The Mountain and the Sea, which I read and enjoyed a lot, but I have a yep. feeling, again, there's a good deal in that that I didn't catch on first reading. I'll go mm -hmm. back and, 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 and look at that again. There are even short novels, like one of the ones we've talked about before and we'll talk about again, uh, Nicola Griffith Spear. So it's really a novella, but it's so dense with interesting variations on the Arthurian myth that, yeah, That's you kind true. of want to celebrate books. We should flag for all those nice people out in the world who are going to be voting and nominating for things this year, Spear is a novel, Ooh. not a novella. It's okay. It's technically what we used to call a short novel. This is a yes, distinction we've talked about before. Um, yep. Novella has a word length definition that, to my knowledge, does not exist outside the science fiction and fantasy world. Yeah. I will, and I'm not going to put this in the story note, so you're going to have to listen now, everybody. Okay. Um, two books that I'm going to kick off 2023 with because they've been so strongly recommended to me are two debut novels. There's Some Desperate Glory from Emily Tesh, which hmm. is supposed to be an absolutely spectacularly wonderful. Uh, space opera. So I'm absolutely going to be getting into that just as soon as I've finished editing my space opera anthology, or if I just kind of have to try something else. And the other book, which was recommended to me just the other day, is The Saint of Bright Doors by Vajra Chandrasekhera. Huh. I don't know about that right. Chandrasekhera, yeah, okay. And my apologies to Vajra if I got that wrong. And I will practice before we talk about it again. But those books are on my radar. And I'm also beginning to scope out other people whose work we've loved, who have new books coming out. And that will be next mm. year. But this is the end of the year, you know, uh, not the last Cood Street podcast by any number of any manner of means, nor the last one of these conversations we'll have, I'm sure. But, you know, we are looking at the end, end of it. And, you know, it's been a pretty good year. Um, I've thought the same thing. I mean, I, I'm in the same position you are, and this is one of the things where you that happens when you're a reviewer and you get advanced copies. It's been probably a month or two since I've read any 2022 books, or maybe more than that. So, so I've been reading 2023 books for a while now. Um, there are things that stand out in my, in my mind, and I've already mentioned two of them: Spear and Fantasy, and and uh, the Mountain and the Sea in science fiction. But this is the time of the year when we start putting together recommended reading lists. Locus has to put together its recommended reading list, not only of novels, but of uh, divided into categories: science fiction novels, fantasy novels, first novels, 
there's always the debate that goes on among us locus insiders as to whether a first novel ought to be separated out sure. so that it can't be the best science fiction novel of the year if it's the best first novel of the year, but actually sometimes it's both. Um, so there's that in addition to which your, your bailiwick in terms of this thing is looking at all the short fiction. Wow. And even though you have done uh, yeoman's work looking at the short fiction of the year, as has Rich Horton, as has Neil Clark, I don't see how you can do that. I don't see how out of all the stories and all the venues, you can pick even a hundred that are recommended, let alone 10 or 12. I, I think it's true for anybody who's ever tried to cover all of the short fiction that you can't, and it's just a Sisyphean task, as enjoyable as it can be. Mm -hmm. And if you look at the people who are helping us to discuss the short fiction list this year, our own reviewers, Paula Garan, Karen uh, Burnham, and Charles Pacer, uh, as well as Rich Horton, who's going to assist, and some other people. Even then, getting that sort of consensus, because what we strive for with the recommended reading list is some degree of consensus on the best. So it's not just me going, you know, Jonathan loved this story. It's one of the best. It's like you're trying to get a consensus. But to get a consensus is very difficult, particularly difficult in that space. And so that's how that is. I do realize, though, as we drift into this conversation, I did something very unfair. And unfair. I'm now going to stop here. Well, you came to me a moment ago and said, you know, have you been reading anything? And I did not hmm. politely respond. What about you, Gary? Have you been reading anything good lately? Well, actually, one of the things I'm reading now is a book that came out much earlier this year, and I saw it too late to review it, although we will be talking to this author later on one of our special podcasts. And that's, I think, Hokaloa Road by Elizabeth Hand, which Hokaloa um, Road. Which I, it begins as a mystery. I'm halfway through it, so I'm not, I started it last night. It's not nearly uh, as, it, no, it's, it's much more, it's turning into much more of a genre book than I thought. And, and Liz had told me it was going to do that. Yep. But I'm, I'm glad I'm getting to read it at the end of the year because it feels like I'm reading it uh, for fun. It's, it's a suspenseful novel set in a version of Hawaii that might have been imagined by Elmore Leonard. It's much seedier and more dangerous the Hawaii I knew about. And it's one well, of that the things touches that... on, if, if I can interject, that touches mm -hmm. on something which does not limit the Cood Street podcast, but does limit Locus mm -hmm. and its recommended reading list. And that is if it's actually genre, because we have a couple of books. There's Hokalua Road that you're talking about, uh -huh. which is a terrific mystery crime novel. Um, and then we also have Booth by Karen yes. Joy Fowler, which I don't think is really a genre novel by any real stretch. Yeah, and, and ne next, next year we will have to deal with Meanwood by Nicola Griffith, just as we had to deal with Hild, which was a straight historical novel, mm -hmm. but with intellectual gestures that are characteristic of science fiction, I would say. Sure. And I think the other book for me in this space is Devil House by John Darnell, mm -hmm. the uh, lead singer and songwriter for The Mountain Goats, who I did reach out to to talk on this podcast, Gary, but I've never heard back, so ah well. But... Um, Devil House is one of my you know, favorite books of the year, but it's, it's it's a book about true crime. It's not genre really at all. So, mm. you know, so it goes. I think, well, I think that's an issue in terms of how we read in the genre because it's a frustration I know to authors, um, and Karen Joy Fowler, I have not talked to her specifically about this, but a writer who, who makes a reputation in the genre becomes well-known not only as a writer in the field, but as, as somebody who's kind of uh, a, a force behind the... Uh, 
the Otherwise Award, which used to be the Tiptree Award. In other words, Karen has quite a pedigree in science fiction and fantasy. And when she writes Booth, uh, there's a tendency, and I, I, I did this myself, there's a tendency to figure out, is there a way I can read this as science fiction? And then you start getting into irrational thoughts like, well, she's inventing things that happened in the Booth family that there's no documentation sure. for. And so, therefore, is that kind of an alternate history? But once you get to that argument, you're saying, well, that means any historical fiction is going to be alternate history because we have nothing else. So, but, but the question is, how do readers, uh, science fiction readers, respond when one of their favorite writers decides to try to write a mainstream novel? Sometimes the novel just disappears because the, the science fiction readers won't pick it up. And the mainstream readers won't pick it up because it's by a science fiction reader. I think this famously happened decades ago with John Brunner, who had written a mainstream mm-hmm. historical novel, The Great Steamboat Race or something like that. And basically, the science fiction re- readers who in those days had virtually worshipped him because of the trilogy uh, that began with Stand on Zanzibar and, and, and yeah. went on with The Sheep Look Up. In other words, he was one of the major figures. And uh, from the one, um, this is from a book on um, Brunner that was in the series I edited for Illinois. I gather that at the end, his readers would not follow him into the mainstream, and the mainstream wouldn't pick him up. Yeah, I'm, I'm sorry to, that making that crossover is, is as difficult as it is. I'm not in, that surprised that his, sometimes the readers won't follow because mm-hmm. there's either, one, they're reading for a particular thing, or two, the skills that the author has are more readily applied to what they were doing than what they'd like to do. And then mm. their mainstream work or non-genre work is not as good. So that's quite often not the case. And a fabulous example, since we've mentioned her here, mm. I've had two of them would be Nicola Griffith and Elizabeth Hand, yep. both of whom have written genre novels, crime novels, historical novels. You know, I mean, uh, just as Nicola wrote Ammonite and uh, Slow River, she also wrote the odd, uh, um, I forget her last name, the odd trilogy of crime novels, and she wrote, you know, Sheridan oh, yeah. Hill, Mean would come out, and similarly, uh, Elizabeth Hand, in, a bunch, in, in addition to a whole bunch of genre novels, wrote her Casneri novels, and which are not really mm. genre novels at all, and so on. So, yeah, I, I just think it's one of those things, and sometimes readers go with you, and sometimes they don't. It's what a balancing I want- act. I mean, I, I've seen this happen even with writers who are fantasy writers who try to write science fiction and find that their fantasy won't follow them. One strategy, which is very difficult to bring off, and again, I'm going back into literary history here, is if you make some kind of success with the mainstream, you just leave the genre behind. Back in the early 50s, um, I, I, I learned this from Aldous Budras, who was one of this group. There were a group of young writers. Robert Sheckley was one. Aldous Budras was another. Another was a guy named Michael Shara, S-H-A-A-R-A, who was one of the most promising writers for, I think, Galaxy Magazine in the 50s. Wrote a novel sometime in the early 50s called The Killer Angels, which I believe won either a Pulitzer Prize or a National Book Award, a Civil War novel. Yeah, okay. uh, Which was very good. And once he had that, he just turned his back on science fiction, as far as I could tell. Um, yeah. Maybe a couple of more stories here and there. And that's kind of the attitude that you would get then. You either had to try to drag your genre readers with you, or you leave the genre behind. It was something that Vonnegut was thinking about with novels like Breakfast of Champions, where sure. you have to... Uh, sure. I, think, I think we've moved beyond that, because... One of the writers, for example, well, a couple of writers, three, more than two or three writers, but the two names that come to mind now are uh, 
Jonathan Leatham and Michael Chabon, both sure. of whom are equally comfortable in and out of the genre, who seem to be able to get um, their readers to pay attention to the genre writers that they love. And my latest example of that, which you're aware of, um, is a story called Narrowing Valley in the New Yorker of two weeks ago by yes. Jonathan Leatham, which is clearly and openly, directly, and it says, based on an R.A. Lafferty story, which the narrator says he first found in a Robert Silverberg anthology. So the whole story of Lafferty's Narrow Valley is kind of sneaked into the New Yorker through the back door, thanks to Jonathan Leatham. Very true, very true. And, I mean, listeners, you can find The Narrow Valley in the best of R.A. Lafferty, available from Golans in their Masterwork series and from Tor, Tor in their Tor Essential series. Mm-hmm. And that book is recommended to you with the odd caveat, mostly that I edited it. So but <laughs> let me ask you this as we talk about the drift from genre and sort of maybe back to where we were, and that is when it comes to compiling our recommended reading list, to looking at our years mm-hmm. in review and all this sort of thing, is there a moment where – we should be concerned that our interests are drifting too far from the mainstream of the genre that we're part of. You know, are we, I mean, we're not necessarily reading or recommending the most popular books out in the field at any point. Uh, sometimes we do, and there's a nice overlap, but sometimes maybe we're getting off into the weeds a little bit. Is, is it incumbent upon us to try to at least keep that in mind? I'm comfortable in the weeds, frankly. Um, One of the the things that that, that puzzles me when I see the best of the year. No, NPR has its best of the year uh, things, and the New York Times has uh, uh, its 100 best books of the year. Liz Liz Elizabeth Hand's novel, Hokaloa Road, was was on that list. Uh, I think Locus has has historically had an attitude in the field. Uh, And sure. It's one which we either own up to or don't own up to. We have not uh, featured a lot of military science fiction. We've not featured a huge amount of paranormal romance. Uh, there are a lot of things which Locus, frankly, has a bias, as do I, toward a more literary kind of science fiction and fantasy, or a more experimental or adventurous kind, or a more diverse kind. But there is a huge chunk of the field, genres that are completely self-defining subgenres, alternate history, military SF, and so forth and so on, mm-hmm. that can be immensely popular and sure. that also have their own you know, be- year's best lists and so forth and so on. Sure. Uh, that's not really at the center of what Locus has historically done. It doesn't mean that those are not fine genres to be reading. It simply means that in my case, they're not genres I very often read in. I think that's true. I mean, I think it's interesting that if you were to look at the top 10 science fiction novels of the year, depending on who was reading, and that is such mm. a critical thing. But I think for Locus, I think you're as likely to find Emily St. John Mandel there or Adam Roberts there mm. as you are to find John Scalzi. Right. Um, and, I mean, that that's not a bad thing. Certainly, I think you are less likely to, to hear or to see conservative, traditional older style science fiction and fantasy on those lists. And it may be, and I don't know, my only concern with that, and I do have a concern with a little bit, Mm. is I kind of think if a book is done really, really well, right? Like if you're writing a terrific swords and sorcery novel, say, and it is not much different in terms of its political spectrum or its view of the world than Swords and Ice Magic by Fritz Leiber, Mm. 
isn't it still justifiably one of the books of the you know best books of the year if it's that well written, or does it have to have something else? And is part of the locus mix? I guess I'm asking, mm. and the and the Coot Street mix because it's the same, it's a very similar thing. Is it that you have to have in some way advanced, changed, or moved things uh, in the hit evolution of the genre as well as having done it well? Or is that that's, just too dangerous and dodgy? No, I, I think that's exactly what uh, what we've talked about uh, a, a couple of times before. I remember um, several years ago, since this podcast is now 100 years old, we were talking with Paul Kincaid, the distinguished British critic, author of a book about Brian Aldous, which I'll recommend this year. And he was talking about having read a bunch of years' best anthologies, including, I think, one of yours, yeah. and had a sense of repetition, a sense of, I think the word he used was exhaustion. But I don't think I would agree with that term. I think I would agree with uh, the idea that there is science fiction which performs very well within its arena. In other words, there is very good military science fiction. There is very good science fiction horror. There is very good paranormal romance, I'm sure. I'm not familiar enough with it to know. But I am interested in books that seem to extend the possibilities of science fiction in a couple of directions. One is, are these uh, ways of looking at science fiction ideas that advance the dialogue in a significant way, or that critique the dialogue, or that change our view of science fiction? When Kim Stanley Robinson writes a novel like Aurora, for example, uh, he's asking us to rethink the whole idea of the generation starship in a very critical mindset. And he asked us to think of that in terms of the Anthropocene kind of catastrophe we were facing. His argument is, you can't get off this planet, don't fool yourself. Um, that is both a good performance of a science fiction generation starship trail a tra- a novel and a good critique of that field as well. Yeah. Uh, Ray Naylor's I Mentioned the Mountain and the Sea. Uh, which is in some sense an alien contact tale. But it's also a very shrewd critique of alien first contact tales, uh, saying, no, we are not going to sit around the campfire and sing Kumbaya once we meet aliens. We're not going to know what to do with them at all. We never have. Uh, So I'd like to see something that makes me rethink uh, something of uh, what I've thought about science fiction. And a lot of things that work within these subgenres that are circumscribed as a kind of gameplay by gameplay, I mean some of the things I see in alternate histories, um, are terribly ingenious. But to me, they're like reading mm. locked room murder mysteries. It can be excellent yeah, yeah. and brilliant, and I can be fooled by it, and I can be entertained by it for an afternoon, but it's not going to change anything that I think about mystery. So let me ask you this. We, we put out, I mean, we're going to discuss our own preferred books of the year or, or enjoyed books of the year, mm-hmm. um, and we are you know, complicit in you know, issuing other long um, lists. Is there a thing we should maybe keep in, in, tu- keep in mind just how expensive it is to keep, keep up with reading science fiction? Or is that our fellow junkies problem? That's a very interesting question because uh, as, as you're aware, I haven't and you haven't really had to spend a lot of uh, money on novels lately? That's not true at all. That's not okay, true at all anymore. You, I, 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 buy, I, I find myself buying very few novels and buying a lot of them online uh, for convenience. I know you are more of a collector than I am. You will buy oh, these yeah. You will it's buy literally... these wonderful folio society things. No, you, I mean, sure. I, I think we have a misunderstanding about how we are encountering books. Because I'm not a reviewer, right? Ah. I don't get sent anything. You do. 
Oh, yeah. So right. all of the physical books that I have now, I buy, you know. And if you're going to buy, I mean, for example, I would. I don't actually have a copy. I've got a advanced electronic arc mm-hmm. of The Mountain Destiny by Ray Naylor. But if I wanted to buy a copy, it would cost me at least 35 US dollars to buy a copy. Okay, I can see that. And, um, and the same thing's true. If, like a lot of the things I review, I'm, I'm, I'm the, the Hokaloa Road I'm reading on a Kindle right now. Uh, but I think the, the issue that goes back to what was the Heinlein's statement that what we're doing is competing with people for beer money, uh, meaning that he was basically, you know, uh, you're in competition with other forms of entertainment. And novels are getting, I was going to say they're getting more expensive, but in terms of other prices, they're not that terrible. But when I look at a novel like twenty nine ninety five, to be honest, I when I'm reviewing it, I am not going to be asking myself, is this worth $30? Uh, is it maybe not worth $30, but it's worth $20? Point is, you don't have a choice. You either read the novel or you don't. I mean, it may be a, a false path that I've led us down because, of course, our readers are free to go to libraries and get these things. Right. They can be a little patient, as, as annoying as it is, and get them in used bookstores, which is perfectly reasonable. If you are willing to read digitally, which I would assume about a third to a half of our listeners are, then certainly it's cheaper to acquire a digital edition than a printed edition. But yeah, if you want printed books, it's it's like a factor of just how many you can actually acquire. They're, I think, materially more expensive. We, we are out of the territory of beer money and into the ter- territory of food money. That's probably true. Um, and I think one of the things that um, affects my reading, I mean, I would always prefer to read a physical book. There are all kinds of reasons. I see advantages to uh, digital books and that I can highlight passages more easily and find them lately without having to flip through the books. But I... It, it, it's not convenient to make notes in the margin and underline things. And it's a physical sense of the book. Um, there's a sense when I'm reading a very long novel, possibly the longest novel I read this year uh, was Kate Hartfield's The Embroidered Book, which I liked a lot. But I, one of the reasons I enjoyed reading it was I could actually see that my bookmark is more than halfway through it now. I'm doing really well. <laughs> and and, and on, on, on an online thing, you're thinking I'm, 60% of the way to, that doesn't mean the same thing at all. So there's, yeah. I, I think there's a generational thing, and I don't know if there's any evidence of this or not. Maybe a ju- younger generation who grew up reading screens before they were reading books may be more comfortable with ebooks than I am. I, I don't I object don't to them. I don't know if that's true. I mean, I will always think back to a podcast that you and I recorded in. 2014 in London Hmm. and we were talking to people there and my daughter Sophie was at the convention and she appeared on a panel talking about whether younger readers preferred to read digital. Yes, I remember that. And at that time, the consensus was that most of them did not. They still preferred uh, print print for all of the reasons that we preferred it. Uh, Not the least being, in their instance, a real social element. It was easier to share a print book. It was easier to find. They would go on uh, uh, trips to bookstores to find books together, uh, all that kind of thing. You know, it has been a frustration, I know, at times of Sophie's, my daughter, that she -hmm. would have a digital copy of a book on a Kindle that she couldn't just share with a friend um, because, you know, they want to read it as well. And I know there have been changes to how these systems work to make them more shareable, but it doesn't quite get around to it. And the other thing that is true, and I mean, just this week, 
amongst other books on my copy of Africa Risen arrived, 500-page uh-huh. hardcover. Sits nicely in the hand, Gary. Yes. Lies open. It's just nice, a book that is nice to hold. And that is a thing, you know, there's just there's something about having a book, to me at least, that is worth it. There are a couple, of, also- aspe- yeah, there are a couple of aspects to that. When I was at World Fantasy, uh, Ron Drummond was there with some of the very first mm. copies of the 20th anniversary edition, or what is now the 20th anniversary of the 20th anniversary edition of John Crowley's Little Big. It is a gorgeous book. It is an yes. object you want to hold. It, it lays down flat. It's got wonderful illustrations in it. It's, it's clearly a, a, a kind of thing you want to possess. That's a different kind of thing. That's the kind of thing you get with the Folio Society sure. books, which are very well designed. One, wow. of the things, can... mm-hmm. my, one of the things I was going, the point I was going to get to is that I don't feel like I own a book if it only exists on an electronic device. I don't feel like it's a thing. Yeah. Yeah. And when I'm reading, when I get a collection of stories, let's say, um, well, okay, one of the books we're looking forward to next year is a collection of uh, Kelly Link stories. Um, And we'll be looking at a collection of Kids Johnson stories. Now, some of these stories have been online, but I won't, and some of them I probably read, but I won't feel that I've read them until I can hold something in my hands that has the story inside it. Very much. I think that's true. I think, I think it's Black Dog, White Cat, or Black Cat, whatever it is, which yeah. is the Kelly Link collection, uh, which is full of stories, a number of which I've read. It's still a different thing to have the actual book. Mm. I was just going to say, yes. apropos your previous, that there are a couple of almost impossible or difficult to get books that were beautiful that came out in 2022 mm-hmm. that I would at least mention th- and recommend. Um, I'm yet to physically hold in my hands either a copy of the 40th anniversary edition of Little Big, which you can still order online for however much it is, but it looks quite stunning. It is. Uh, I have uh, got a copy of The uh, the Trouble with Peace by Joe Abercrombie, which is put out by Subterranean, mm-hmm. which is one of the most stunningly lovely editions of a book that I've seen. They also did a glorious edition of The 10,000 Doors of January by Alex E. Harrow mm-hmm. and have made a habit of doing beautiful artistic editions of recent novels that really are quite extraordinary. And so I would absolutely recommend those if you were fortunate enough to be able to get them. Um, and you're right. The Folio Society, who have since since they published, um, it must have been Philip K. Dick maybe, uh, have really done well finan- well out of uh, no out of June maybe uh, out of yeah. science fiction and they've just completed the first trilogy of Earthsea the Le Guin books mm-hmm. the Wizard of Earthsea the Tombs of Achuan and the Fire of the Shore and they're stunning stunning looking books so those are all from my point of view beautiful available some of them and recommendable so I would it looks like it's worth seek- seeking one of the last I think there's maybe a couple of hundred copies left of Little Big. And let you know, the others are around. But anyway, my question, yeah, my question to you, and, and you're much more of a collector than I am, and other friends of mine, most of the people I know are better collectors. But when you were you to get something like, say, this gorgeous edition of Little Big or one of your Folio Society volumes, they did the Book of the New Sun a few years ago. Do you actually read them in those editions, or do you just put them away as possessions? I do. Aha! You read them? Yes. I consider the Folio Society's editions to be lovely, but they're frankly just pretty reprints. Well, it's that's the first true. edition yeah. you have to be careful of. I tend to agree with that, and I tend to think that reading a book in a beautifully produced format is is very attractive. I mean, 
even though people complain about the type size and the thinness of the paper, I like the Library of America books I've got. I just got the two-volume Ray Bradbury thing. And you probably remember this because it was, I'm reviewing it in some time and you've already read this. But there's something about seeing a book which reproduces other books that is more mm. important than just seeing a bunch of stories. And one of the things that I experienced looking at, for example, the second volume of the Ray Bradbury, there are two volumes from the library. The mm-hmm. second volume includes The Illustrated Man as a complete collection and The October Country as a complete collection, and then a bunch of maybe 27 other stories. I read, I did not read The October Country in hardback because I couldn't afford hardbacks back. I don't even know if yeah. there was a hardback, come to think of it. But reading it in a book is different from reading these stories in a morass of a hundred other Bradbury stories uh, without any context, without any sense of historical uh, positioning. And it just strikes me as recreating the sense of reading a book for the first time. In, in other words, uh, books... Which is valuable, yeah. Yeah, I mean, my, my point is even short story collections work better as books than they do as just compilations of endless numbers of stories. One of the things that I'm sad about is that many years ago, I guess now, I had a conversation with Kelly Link in her capacity as the co-proprietor of Small Beer Books. Mm -hmm. And at that time, they had a plan to reprint each of James Tiptree Jr.'s original short story collections with Tiptree Art, I believe. Ah. Uh, They were talking to, I think it's Jeff Smith, who was the uh, person who was coordinating all of that. And that looked like that at that, that point that was going to happen. And I have always been sorry that didn't happen, you know, because there was something about having, about having it. You're right. And similarly, and this is this may be me personally fetishizing particular editions of books, but when I read 900 Grandmothers by R.A. Lafferty, I want the original Ace paperback yes. with, the, with the Dylan artwork and all that kind of thing. It feels like the right way to experience it or... If I'm going to read Howard Waldrop, I want to read the original double-day edition of Howard Who, which I'm fortunate to have a couple of copies of. Um, That kind of thing. So, yeah, there is. But there's another reason. And and that is even for younger readers who want to get a sense of why was this person important, it helps to read the stories in the collections that that other readers read at the time. In other words, to understand Waldrop's influence or Lafferty's or Bradbury's, it's important to understand how these books came out and who read them. For example, one of the things, one of the points I make about Bradbury is that a lot of people view him as a sentimentalist. And if you look at the October Country, which is most of the stories in it are pretty dark. Uh, It was based on his earlier Arkham House book, Dark Carnival. And you don't understand why so many people who are now candidates for Shirley Jackson Awards or Bram Stoker Awards, why so many people cite Bradbury as an influence. If you just read a bunch of Bradbury stories, you don't get that sense of darkness you get from the one collection, the October Sure. Collection. Same thing's true yeah. with Howard Waldrop. You have to look at how that's how Howard Who really impacted a generation of subsequent writers because they had not yeah. seen anything quite like this before. Nine hundred grandmothers is another example. We should probably if if we had done any preparation at all for this podcast, we would now have a list of story collections that you really need to read that will uh, give you a sense of what the writer is up to. I will name one that I read as a kid. Mm-hmm. And I was talking uh, to our friend, Paul McCauley, who will be one of our uh, shorter podcasts later. And he was mentioning a, a, a an Arthur C. Clarke story. And there yep. were a couple of early uh, 
Ballantine collections in the United States from Clark. One was called Expedition to Earth. The other was called Reach for Tomorrow. And anybody of my generation or possibly a generation later who saw those stories understands where a story like The Sentinel comes from or where a, a story about the glaciers returning. Was, Clark in his short fiction just went after the sense of wonder. He went after the the fireworks ending where you realize, oh, the insects have won the evolutionary battle or the glaciers are returning or the aliens are coming or whatever. They were not good stories, but they were great ideas. And they were. everybody who was influenced by, and, and, and what, what Clark later did with things like Rendezvous with, with Rama was just write novel length versions of those same ideas. It, it, yes, absolutely. Actually, when it comes to great short story collections you should read, we should probably schedule Maybe a podcast mm. where we discuss one of my great hobby horses, the great first collections of our genre. You know, huh. books like The Fantasy Writer's Assistant by Jeffrey Ford that came out right. in 2002 and collected the first flush of his short fiction and went on to win the World Fantasy Award. I honestly think that quite often the best, the most interesting, the most important short story collections that any writer will, will release in their careers is the very first one, because that has that first flush of energy. And if you look at the work of Larry, of Larry Niven, of Greg Egan, of John Varley, of Jeff Ford, of, Andrew, of Andy Duncan, of all sorts of other people, these first collections, H.P. Lovecraft, R. Ray, Brad, Ray Bradbury. Right. I mean, Dark Carnival is a viscerally important book. Um, so I think there's, there's a thing there to be done. But I, I also and I think we could, we could add to that list Magic for Beginners, Kelly Link. Sure. We could add uh, Stories of Your Life and Others by Ted Chang. Absolutely. The, 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 the impact that those stories had, those collections had at least as great an impact as a terrific first novel would have. Absolutely. Absolutely. Suddenly, uh, I mean, it was suddenly. I remember talking to Gavin Grant about this at one point. That uh, the first couple of years of uh, small beer, I'm sure he will correct me if I'm wrong. Most of their profits were from Magic for Beginners because at some point it showed up being reviewed in the New Yorker. At some point, that book simply broke out and became one of the major literary short fiction collections of the century, even. Um, yeah. And that as and and, and and Kelly Link has certainly not disappointed us since then, nor has Sin Chang disappointed us uh, since the first collection. Well, but, the other thing is with that in the first collection is you can never have the same impact again. Right. It's like it's like the the runaway uh, best selling first album from a group or whatever else. This is the first time you make your statement, particularly as a short story writer, when you do your first collection. And there's an importance of showing restraint and style and balance. You look at how Ken Liu puts together the paper menagerie and other stories, where at a point in his career, he probably has 120, 140 stories to choose from, and it's a very small subset. But it's incumbent upon me as the occasional skipper of this ship to maybe steer us back to our core topic for a second. Do we have a court house? We you sort of do, you. Gary. We're sort of touching on the, the end the end of the year, we're, ah, uh, yes. book recommendations, and this thing that we've done. And before we cut to the thing, I'm going to do something a little unfair, but hopefully that will prove to be of interest to the listeners. And that is going to run down very quickly through the categories for novels and maybe uh -huh. collections for the Locus Awards and ask you to name, and maybe I'll name, one or two books in each category that we feel we'd recommend that we read during 2022. Now, because it's unfair to have done it yes. without forewarning you, I might 
start, and then I'll let you maybe pick up when you've had a moment to stop and draw breath. I'm, I'm drawing, a, I'm thinking right now. So, for example, for a science fiction novel, one of my very favorite science fiction novels is Neon, uh, Neon by Levi Tidhar, which came out mm -hmm. in the back quarter of the year from Tachyon Publications. It is a beautiful, moving, thoughtful uh, portray, uh, uh, look into a richly imagined world. I read an online review of it that said that it was really for hardcore genre readers, and I'm not sure that I really? agree with that at all. I think, yeah, very much. I think it's a, actually a supremely accessible book. Um, Tidhar, for all of the idiosyncrasies of his imagination, actually writes in a very, very approachable style, and I found Neom to be immensely readable. And it, it does stand as one of my favorite books of the year and one of my favorite science fiction books it, of it, the it's year. Also, yeah, it's also a thoughtful, ruminative novel. I can understand that comment, I suppose, because one of the things that the Tidhar has done consistently is, is to pay homage to earlier science fiction. Hmm. So, for example, he has all kinds of names and allusions in, in, in Neom that refer to earlier science fiction. All those robots are named after... Yeah. Uh, Philip K. Dick robots or Clifford Simak robots. <coughs> there are uh, characters from or Alfred Bester. Uh, he's doing this, but none of that is necessary to under to understand or appreciate the novel. In other words, it's it's a kind of it's, it's something. It's, they're Easter eggs for science fiction. Very much. As somebody very, who's in very love much. with the history of the genre and likes to celebrate it. It's not necessary to understand any of those allusions to appreciate Neam, which also, as one of the things I will say. Uh, among novels that I like this year, it's not too long. It gets a lot done in a fairly short amount of space. It is a very, uh, as, as, as usually, it's a very uh, efficient book. I also right. actually really enjoyed, I shouldn't sound surprised, it's like, it sounds like I'm like, oh, look, I really, no. I really enjoyed the Kaiju Preservation Society from John Scalzi, which mm. is literally what it says on the label. I don't doubt. If you imagine what a Scalzi novel called the Kaiju Preservation Society would be like, that's exactly what it is. And before I throw to you for your two, okay. I'll throw in a wild card off to one side because I started taking a look at this just recently. Sweep of Stars by Maurice Broadus is also worth your time. Uh -huh. Now, there are many others, but how about you, Gary? A couple of science I'll, fiction I'll, books. I'll start if somebody asked me this. We were on a panel. I was on a panel. I was very impressed to be on a panel um, at uh, – at, at World Fantasy Convention um, uh, with Ginger Buchanan. And she asked me what books I would recommend from this year. And I, the one novel that came to mind immediately was um, When Women Were Dragons, Kelly Barnhill's, not first really? novel, but I guess first. Of the, it, well, it, it, it struck me as something, when I start reading it, I'm thinking, this is such an absurd premise, you can't possibly make it work. And then I realized, in some ways, <clears throat> Kelly Barnhill is saying to us, this is such an absurd premise. Watch me make it work. Uh, yeah. And it works beautifully as a coming-of-age novel in a 1950s America, but a 1950s America in which 200,000 women had been turned suddenly into dragons. And the dragon part of the narrative and the coming-of-age part of the narrative um, work beautifully together. And it, it's a novel that got better and better and better as I realized what was going on in it. So that was... Fantasy novel, though, right? It's a fantasy novel. Am I supposed to be looking oh, at science, science fiction novel? Okay. Well, I've already mentioned The Mountain and the Sea. Uh, yeah. So let me go back to, let me think. Um, I've, you've mentioned 
that already. I'm, I'm, I'm looking at the mm -hmm. list of things I've actually... You know, what's interesting, while I'm looking at the things I reviewed, I did not review that many science fiction novels. There are things mm -hmm. that seem to work reasonably well that had flaws. Emily St. John Mandel's Sea of Tranquility is a beautifully written novel. And it's one of these novels which we are seeing more and more and more of. It's partly in the past, partly in the near future or present, partly in the distant future. And as usual with these novels, the historical part, which takes place, I believe, in Saskatchewan in 1912, is enormously evocative, convincing. The near future part is as convincing as well. It's kind of a sequel to her non-genre novel, uh, The Glass Hotel. The future bit is a bit more wobbly. Uh, I, I would say uh, not underimagined, but your sort of discipline of doing research and uh, and and being rigorous in in constructing a world of Saskatchewan in 1912 is a different set of skills when you're trying to sketch a 23rd century lunar colony. And yeah. my, my complaint, which I've seen before uh, and other writers have shared, is that there's a certain kind of laziness that attaches itself to writers who uh, think sure. the future can be put what you want. So I, I think it's a good novel. I think it's a well-written novel. Uh, it's a better novel than it is a science fiction novel, if that makes any sense. Sure. So, okay, you've got The Mountain and the Sea, and you've got Sea of Tranquility. Then mm -hmm. we segue to fantasy novels. Now, if I'm starting, because I'm trying to give you that time, uh, I mean, you've already mentioned one, and it would have been amongst my top few. I've already indicated that Spear by Nicola Griffith, which is a right. short novel, is one of the most outstanding books of the year and one of my very favorites. I also loved All the Seas of the World by Guy Gabriel Kay, a another book in another volume of his, I want to say, pseudo Mediterranean uh, historical fantasies. Beautiful, moving, mm. funny book, well, well worth uh, seeking out. And I mean, there are others, there are many, actually, probably like you, for me, more fantasy novels this year than science fiction. I could probably name 10 off the top of my head. But what about you, if you would tend to name like two? Um, well, okay, I, I can't name two that would exclude all the seas of the world. One of the top fantasy novels I would have, I, I don't know where I would rank these things, because I hate ranking things, would have been Nevo's The Siren Queen, which yep. is a... Uh, Secret Supernatural History of Hollywood, which begins uh, like a very well-researched uh, kind of Romana Clef about a Chinese-American young woman who becomes uh, an, an actress pretty much to some extent in the model of the real actress Anna Mae Wong. But Hollywood is controlled by dark powers, by dark forces. The, uh, and, and, and these dark forces emerge more and more during the course of the novel. And I think it's a very cleverly constructed novel for people who uh, may be Nevo readers. I'm not sure whether the readership of her, uh, she also had a novella out this year, Into the Riverlands, a third of her singing hills. Yes. I'm not sure yeah. that that readership is necessarily the same readership that read her F. Scott Fitzgerald novel. But my guess is she has a kind of literary historical readership who, sure. once they're pulled into this novel, are pulled into the supernatural elements in a very clever and very insidious way. And that's one of the things that I liked about it. It's just flat out off the wall by the time it's over. But sure, it, sure. it starts out as a historical novel. I had another science fiction novel. I was looking at this list, though, <laughs> and because I did not realize this was actually a 2022 novel until I uh, looked on my list. At least it's 2022 in, um, 
in England, and that is Christopher Priest's Expect Me Tomorrow, which is another Anthropocene novel. Um, yeah. And it's one that, uh, along with, well, there, there are two Anthropocene novels, or Anthropocene, depending on, I don't, I don't think anybody knows how to pronounce anyway, it. Yeah. Um, but uh, the other one is Paul McCauley's Beyond the Burn Line, which was out this, this year in the UK and is scheduled as a January 2023 book here. Both of them, uh, well, in Paul McCauley's case, it starts in a very far future, though after the extinction of humanity, 40,000 years in the future, a society of creatures that are uh, trying to reconstruct some scientific discoveries. And we realize they're not human, but we don't realize the whole story until you get into the second half of it. But yeah, it's clearly yeah. that the novel is about the Anthropocene. Sure. Expect Me Tomorrow, the Christopher Priest novel, is partly set, this is another trend I'm noticing, bifurcated timelines, partly set in the Victorian era, where a glaciologist uh, becomes concerned about climate change, but he's absolutely concerned that a new ice age is coming, and he yeah. starts trying to uh, uh, gin up some panic about uh, about the world freezing again, which is reasonable after Krakatoa and after the sure, summer sure. of 1860. Uh, but the second part of the novel is in the 21st century when England has been devastated by global warming, and these people are barely trying to survive. And the, the, the future part of it has two twins who are psychically linked to the set of Victorian twins in the other part of it. And it's not only an interesting comment on climate change, it's an interesting set of comments on how we think about climate change and how, for example, using the evidence available to the Victorians, they were well aware that climate change was going to happen, but they got it completely yeah, wrong. Yeah. Okay. Now, moving on quickly, because we're... Yes. we're, we're um, I don't really have much in the way of horror because I don't read much. I can tell you that the Paul Bearers Club by Paul Tremblay is widely admired. If you allow that Devil House by John Darnell is horror, and I don't know if we do, then that's one of the books of the year. I did read the widely applauded uh, fairy tale by Stephen King, which mm -hmm. I didn't applaud, and so I will leave that there. I don't know if you've read anything in that space, do you? I, I have a hard time figuring out what the space between fantasy and, uh, and horror is. One of the novels which I thought was uh, on the border and was very impressive was Stephanie Feldman's Saturnalia which mm -hmm. is a dark fantasy. Uh, I, I, I once had a conversation with Ellen Datlow, who in her mind has a very clear distinction between dark fantasy and horror, and I still don't understand it. But this strikes <laughs> me as being dark fantasy with elements of horror. There are monstrous creatures in it. It takes place um, in a kind of a global warming future, the future Philadelphia, which has been overrun by climate refugees and climate change. And... Saturnalia has become a kind of overnight uh, festival uh, sure. that celebrates various different gods and this sort of thing. So, of course, there are uh, ominous horror kinds of gods in it, but it, uh, it, it sort of balances that line between, uh, I guess, between urban fantasy on the one hand, between dark fantasy on the sure. other, and between horror on the third hand, and it's appropriate that horror has three hands. Yeah. Well, we'll then move on to young adult. Now, probably, I, I personally am utterly unqualified to talk about uh, the best young adult novels of the year. If I was going to try and cover it sensibly in this space, I'd bring in some of our friends to talk about it. The one book that does bubble up, which I'm not sure even is young adult, is The Ogress and the Orphans by Kelly Barnhill, which was mm. up for the National Book Award and is a wonderful, wonderful book. I did read the latest book uh, from Frances Harding, 
everything she does is, to, to my mind, fantastic. And her book Unraveling was another terrific one. You, however, are in the middle of at least one young adult series, aren't you, Gary? Well, the, uh, I was trying to figure out when the uh, um, Charlie Jane Anders, the second novel of her trilogy, came out this year, I believe, didn't it? Yes, it did. Yeah, okay. Dream, Dreams Bigger Than Heartbreak. Well, I mean, this is something, and, and, and the titles are uh, the titles are bold in, in, in the sense that uh, they kind of represent an emotion rather. They, they, they tell us about feelings rather than the context. But what interested me about Charlie Jane's is that she was clearly, I don't know how much she read about classic space opera, and we've talked about space opera before, but she has kids, uh, you know, the secret identity, the kid on Earth who is really a secret galactic princess who gets caught up in uh, intergalactic wars and has a bunch of other uh, outsider kids uh, from, from Earth becoming the crew of the spaceship. And it's like a deliberate attempt and a deliberately diversified attempt to reclaim the classic space opera for a yeah. young, uh, diverse, sometimes neuroatypical, sometimes just a very interesting group of young people. And the, it's, it's not as though the novel is necessarily written for any particular group of people, yeah. but it's looked like she's, it looks to me like in both, both novels that what Anders is trying to do is uh, to take a group of uh, readers who may not have seen themselves represented in science fiction much before and show them that they can be in the middle of a space opera, which is more uh, larger scale than, than Star Wars. In other words, the, the space opera elements of these novels date all the way back to Edmund Hamilton. Uh, yeah, and yeah. the scale of the, the, the monster that can create and destroy universes is out there. And at the end of one volume, at the end of the second volume, we find, no, that monster is afraid of this monster. Um, so the scale gets bigger and bigger and bigger, which is one of the things space yeah. opera does. But at the same time, it's, uh, it, it's saying to a new generation of kids that you, know, you don't have to be basically a nerdy white boy in order to save the universe. Although there are nerdy white boys in it. Which, which is an important message to deliver. It's kind of I an important message. My point is she doesn't, she's not doing this as an exercise. She's having a lot of fun recreating yeah, the yeah. space opera environment. And I yeah. think that fun is contagious. In the interest of brevity, we will we'll cover only one more category because that gets us through the novels part of it. We will no doubt cover the, more of this in future conversations. But first novels, you've already touched on one as one of your best science fiction novels of the year, mm. The Mountain and the Sea by Ray Naylor. Now, for May, I would mention The Genesis of Misery by Neon Yang. Okay. Neon has been around for some while now, had the Tensor trilogy of novellas come out. This is a different kind of a thing. It's the first book in a trilogy. It's... How would one put it? It's a space opera where a Joan of Arc type character is a gunship pilot hmm. and what follows therein. And it is engaging and well done and highly recommended. I would also recommend as a first novel, uh, Sequoia Nagamatsu's um, uh, pandemic book, uh, How High We Go in the Dark, which is a beautifully done book. And I think... Our, our listeners would enjoy a great deal. What about you, Gary? I'm trying to Give look at find, I'm, I'm trying to figure out um, if any of the novels I looked at this year were first novels. I believe. Yes. Did you I read the book? I believe book eaters, the book uh, mm -hmm. Sumitatsu. Mm. Uh, Sumit, let me see if I can get the name. Uh, Sunye Dean, the book eaters. Yes. Which is a uh, very well imagined, and and again, this is one of the ones that edges into horror. I mean. 
the premise, again, it's, it's one of the things that I'm seeing as a trend. <coughs> I mentioned when women were dragons. Starts with an absurd, unbelievable, like, I'm going to sell this to you whether you like it or not premise. Women turn into dragons. This one deals with uh, families in England who historically can absorb knowledge by literally eating books. Um, and it's, it's terribly convenient to them because they can, if they need to know uh, when the train will be arriving, they can simply eat the train schedule and it's internalized. Yeah. That sounds like a comic novel. It gets darker and darker as it goes on. And like when, like when women uh, were dragons, once you accept the premise, it becomes a very powerful novel about family mm-hmm. and about parental responsibility and about love and guilt and so forth and so on. And it also, in a sense, is a kind of vampire novel because it turns out, this is in the beginning, the opening chapter, so I'm not giving anything away. It turns out that the, uh, the, the central character's son um, has this disease of needing to eat books. And if you can't eat books, the next best thing is to eat the brains of somebody who has read a lot of books. <laughs> so it becomes a vampire story um, <laughs> with, with ink instead of blood, I suppose. And it's, that sounds uh, fun. Yeah, it is. Once you get past the absurdity of the premise, and this is a thing which is not entirely new in, in, in fantasy and science fiction, but it's always struck me as being a gutsy kind of thing to do, where I'm going yeah. to come up with a premise that just, what if people could memorize the books that they ate? If you said that to me at a party, I'd say that's just dumb. If you sure. give me a novel that turns into this one, I'm, I'm willing to accept it, but I'm willing to yeah, accept yeah. it because it's a good novel in other ways. I mean, I'll say as well, I mean, other first novels that stood out, I mean, Alex Jennings had a New Orleans-based musical fantasy, The Ballad of Perilous Graves, out. I think you may have read R.B. Lemberg's The Unbalancing, which yes. is their debut novel in the Birdverse. Uh, there was Hiron Ennis's Leech. There was Joma West's Face. A whole bunch of different kind of books. There was space operas. Epic fantasies, science fiction, all kinds of things. So there was another, first novel, another first novel I should mention, which I'm just now seeing again, was uh, it had one of the oddest titles of the year. It's a novel by Nassim Jamnia called The Bruising of, Kil- of Kilwa, Q-I-L-W-A. Yeah. And again, it's a fairly uh, convincing. It's, it's one of those things that has a good sense of an epic feel to it. I don't know if it's the beginning of a series, um, but it, uh, it had, again, very powerful uh, portrayals of, uh, of of family relationships yeah. and betrayals and so forth. So, yeah, yeah, I guess I guess first novels are still in in pretty good shape. Always. I mean, this is one of those things you sort of. In fact, you, I don't even worry about it anymore, Gary. There's always going to be great first novels coming out. Mm. You know, we we always have more than we can read, and our reader, our listeners, have more than they can read. But to segue now towards the the outro for this that particular episode. We've been busy, Gary. We've been preparing a little gift for our listeners. Yes. The Crude Street Advent Calendar, a sequence of, I guess, 28 short podcasts talking to some of our favorite people about some of our favorite books of the year. One of the things we started with was, well, you, you came up with the Advent Calendar, and then you and I tried to figure out what Advent is. Uh, because it's something where you open little doors in a box and get chocolates Chocolate or, or something or whatever. Or whatever. Or whatever. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so, yeah, open open up the podcast one once a day during Advent, and you'll get this. Um, and we basically started this talking about books we were going to recommend and thought, well, why don't we come up with a bunch of books we're going to recommend and talk to the authors of those books? Absolutely. So we, are giving, we are giving you recommendations and authors all at once. Yes, and, I mean, 
because honestly, uh, it's just too busy a time of year and because I'm not that great at it anyway, they're not the most thorough show notes, I confess. So whilst there are links and when this podcast comes out, the one you're listening to now, if you go and look at the show notes for this episode, there are links to the books that we've recommended for all of the people that we've recorded so far. We've got mm. a couple still to do. So the Advent calendar is still evolving, but there's 20 odd that are in hand. And if you're looking for space operas, first novels, epic fantasies, short story collections, there is something there for you. So look at the show notes. But this episode will come out. Now, I know that as we talk right now, it's November the 26th in the United States, November the 27th here in Perth. So it's ad the first day of Advent here. Mm -hmm. So in addition to this episode, we will launch well, the, uh, the uh, Advent calendar itself with our first conversation, and that will be with Nicola Griffith, the author of Spear, a conversation you recorded, and then we'll see where we go. And we hope that our listeners feel comfortable enough being sentenced to 27 in a row of the Dude, they took 120 a couple of years ago. We I'm don't sure know that. that. Some of them may have shot themselves halfway through. Who knows? You're an optimist. That never even crossed me. I thought well, they might just like, delete the episodes. Of you can just delete the episodes if you don't want to listen to I, them. Okay, fine. <laughs> yeah, we, we won't be away. offended. It's okay. No, we won't I mean, be offended. We, people and, download and, this and we, will, we will continue to record these completely aimless wandering episodes during the time in which you are listening to Advent yeah, calendar version. I would expect another couple of these to get us through to the end of the year, and then we'll see where we are. But our promised 26 episodes will have been well and truly delivered, and we will be okay. All right. And until we talk to you again, then, on one of those short podcasts or one of these long ones, this has been the Good Street Podcast. It has indeed.